If you would, please turn to the book of Ephesians. So I have to apologize because between the last night and this morning, I made uh, several edits to the sermon. And so if you are following along in the bulletin insert that is in your bulletin, uh, you're going to get lost. <laughs> so I apologize uh, for that. I don't do that very often, but it does happen occasionally. So, um, so you won't see the, the notes up on the screen. You'll see the two main sets of passages that I'll be preaching from this morning, which is Ephesians and 1 Timothy. But I will open up with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4.11, and he, as Christ, gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray for this moment and we pray that you would not only help me as I proclaim your word, as I help us to understand the office and responsibilities of an elder, but we pray that you would also encourage us, that you would speak to us through your word this morning. We trust you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for several weeks, we've been walking through this series on the church. What is the church? What does the church do? Talking about some of the, the, the defining elements or defining marks of the church. We've talked about preaching of the word of God. We've talked about service. We've talked about fellowship. We've talked about uh, the office of deacons a couple weeks ago. And today we're talking about the office of elders. And next week will be the last sermon in this series. And in that sermon, we'll be talking about the uh, missions and evangelism and really bringing all these different elements or different marks of the church uh, to bear as we strive for this, this mission that the Lord has called us to. Today we are talking about the office of the elder pastor, and you'll hear me continue to refer to it as elder pastor because in the scriptures, elder pastor, essentially, they're the same thing. Pastor's an elder, and elder's a pastor. And so I want to begin first by talking about what is the grand vision of this office. And in this first point, talk about the responsibilities of the office, and then we'll conclude with the second point, which is what are the responsibilities of this office. But I wanted to talk about first the grand vision of the office because I think it's important for us to know what is the overarching vision for the church and where, do the, uh, where does the office of elder fit in that overarching purpose or, mission or vision of the church? And I think it's important for us to talk about these things. One, because we are a church with elders. It's important to know what is an elder, what does an elder do, what are the responsibilities of an elder. 
And I think it's important for all of us to be able to, to, to buy into this vision that I see in Ephesians chapter 4. So it tells us in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ gave to the church the office of shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so to then, to what end? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that's kind of, that's kind of the direction where the church should be headed. A unity of the faith and a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. This unity of faith is kind of synonymous with unity of the gospel. And this unity of the faith or unity of the gospel comes from the church working together, serving together, doing life together, as we see in Acts chapter 2. When Peter preached the gospel and and then the church was born and then people we see began to do life together. We strive for this unity as we do life together, as we serve, as we fellowship, as we encourage one another. And Paul, so Paul, the Apostle Paul seems to be telling us that he gave, that Christ gave to the church the office of shepherds and teachers or the elder pastor in order to help the church along that direction, to pursue and to maintain the unity. Unity of the gospel, unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is primarily, I think, through the ministry of the Word of God. This is teaching. This is theology. This is doctrine. So essentially, Paul is telling us that the church is striving for maturity. That he wants the church to grow up. Right when a little child, when a little baby, when you have an infant in the home, right, the, the, the cute and the cuddly, and you're, and, you're th- and, you're, and you're saying, oh, I wish you could stay this age forever. But you know that's not necessarily what your ultimately, what your greatest desire is, right? Because ultimately you desire for a child to grow, to learn, to adapt, to grow up to greater maturity. And that's essentially how Paul envisions his church, how Christ envisions the church that they will continue to grow into maturity. It's our purpose to, to mature, to grow up, to be in this process of maturing. And so what is the purpose? If we are to grow into the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, which, by the way, doesn't happen in this life. It happens when we see Christ face to face, but it doesn't mean that we don't strive for that. But if we are to grow up into the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, what is the Why? What's the purpose behind that? And Paul tells us, so that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So in other words, so that we may not be like ships without a rudder, just in the ocean, tossed to and fro by the waves, just carried about wherever the water takes us. And so we need to be grounded. We need to be established right, in the gospel, in the word of God. Because there are a lot of competing false doctrines in the world. There are a lot of competing ideologies in the world today. And many churches are confused. 
by all these different ideologies in the world and these different gospels. And so the church must continue to mature so that we won't be led astray. Or because I said before in the previous sermon that false doctrine is deadly. That false doctrine is damning. And I don't, I don't particularly like it. I don't ever like it when Christians say, I don't care for theology. Or I don't like theology. With theology actually matters a great deal. Theology matters for your life. Theology determines how you live your life. If you say that God is God, that's a theological statement. If you say that there is only one God, that's a theological statement. If you say that Jesus died on the cross for sin, that's a theological statement. You're doing theology. So to some degree, every Christian should care about theology because what you believe and think about God and Jesus Christ and what he came to do will determine how you live your life. And so doctrine matters. Theology matters. It matters for life. Because there's a lot of false doctrine in the world. There's health and wealth, health and wealth gospel. There's legalism, perfectionism, like that we can achieve some kind of perfection and sinlessness in this life. The scriptures never teach that. There's man-centered gospel as opposed to God-centered gospel. And all these things are founded on false theology. And so we have to understand what is true and sound theology. And Paul is telling us that part of the reason why Christ gave to the church the office of an elder pastor is to keep the purity of the doctrine. To make sure that God's people are not being led astray by false ideologies or false doctrines in the world. And so that is what we're striving for. And so how does the office of an elder pastor come alongside the church to go or to head in that direction? And that's by equipping the saints and building up the body of Christ. And this is where we get to the responsibilities of the office. Literally in the Greek, where it says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, it actually says for the perfecting of the saints. It doesn't say to perfect the saints, right? <laughs> Nobody... It's impossible for me to perfect anybody. But it's perfecting the saints, that we are in this process of being perfected, this process of maturing, this process of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And this happens, and as we see this in Acts chapter 6, when when the, the apostles called the church and they called select individuals to become deacons to alleviate some of the responsibilities that were falling upon the, the, the past or the apostles. And apostles, elders, are essentially the same thing. The difference between apostles and pastors or elders is that the apostles saw the risen Lord Jesus. But essentially, they performed the same functions. They had the same responsibilities. But anyways, in Acts chapter 6, they called upon deacons to alleviate some of the, the, the burdens of the church so that the apostles could give themselves to the ministry of the word and ministry of prayer. And this is essentially the responsibilities of, an, of the elder pastor. They administer to the saints through, through prayer. An elder must be a praying man. 
He has to be praying fervently. He has to be praying diligently. He must be praying consistently for the church. Prayer is a way that he shows concern for the church. He must be praying for the church because the church isn't his. The church belongs to Jesus Christ, and he understands the gravity of his office, and so he must pray that the Lord would continue to provide and equip the saints, that the Lord would continue to protect the church because the elder doesn't work alone, right? He must depend upon God to lead him and guide him. He must pray for the church. He must pray for the members. He must pray for the members by name, which requires that they know the members. It requires that they know the people. Praying for the members by name, it requires that they pray with those members. That they are with the people, praying with them in their homes or if it's over the phone. Not only that, but the elder pastor must also be praying for himself. Because Paul presents to us here in Ephesians 4 it's this, this grand vision and an elder cannot, <laughs> cannot work by himself. That's why he needs a polarity of elders, but even then, he needs Christ. He needs the Holy Spirit to help him, to guide him, to provide the wisdom, to provide the encouragement in times of, of distress. So they minister to the saints, they equip the saints through the ministry of prayer, but also through the ministry of the Word, through teaching the Word of God. What's helpful to the office of an elder pastor is that the Lord did not give, did not leave them high and dry to figure it out themselves, but he's given them the scriptures. Like this is the manual. The elder doesn't depend upon secular ideologies or secular psychology. He doesn't try to conjure up his own wisdom to try to counsel people. He essentially just needs to go to the word. And he teaches through the word. He preaches the word. A little bit more about that later. Essentially, the office of an elder pastor is one of, is a ministry of the word. The elder pastor is one who also must protect. In John 10, 12, Jesus talks about a hireling. He who was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Elder pastors are not hirelings. A hireling is one that will run away when there's distress, when things get hard, a hireling is one that will just run away when he doesn't want to deal with the difficult things in the life of the church. But another pastor must be one who protects the flock. He keeps the wolves from coming in. It's one of the reasons why we, go, we take people through a membership process. And one of those processes is a membership interview. And I like a job interview. But it's a time we are asked questions, right? And some of you who have been through the membership process know what I'm talking about. Like, I'll generally ask you three questions. One, tell me your understanding of the gospel. Relate to me the gospel. Tell me about 
I want to hear just basic things I want to hear. I want to hear about man's need. I want to hear about who Jesus is. I want to hear about what Jesus came to do. And I want to hear about what is, what is our response? What is man's response to the work of Christ? I'll ask about your, your testimony. Tell me about how the Lord Jesus saved you. I want to hear about how you've been growing in grace. I want to hear about what has repentance looked like in your life, how you've been growing in holiness. I'll ask you about your baptism as well. Because you see, this is a way that we provide a hedge of protection around the church. Because if, if I'm talking to somebody and I ask them to relate the gospel to me, and they tell me, well, Jesus is the Son of God, and he died, but he didn't resurrect, then I'm going to be like, whoa, wait a second. That's not the gospel. So that is a way that the elder pastor protects the wolves from coming in. It is the job of the elder pastor to protect the pure doctrine of the church to make sure that we are established in sound theology, that we all understand the gospel, that we believe in the gospel. Though believing in the gospel, of course, is, is up to you. It's your choice. But to make sure that you're believing in the right gospel. And part of that protection includes to pro it's protecting the purity of the church. And one way that we do that is corrections, rebuke, and it's through the sad process of church discipline. Right, when somebody is in unrepentant sin and it ultimately it, it lands in the hands of the elder pastor, well, then they are the ones who take the lead in pursuing that person in correction and then taking it ultimately to the church for excommunication if they don't repent because you cannot treat that person any longer as a believer, as a follower of Christ. The elder pastor is an overseer of souls. Hebrews 13, 17 tells the church, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, just to be clear, the elder pastor is not in charge of your soul. Like whether you continue in the faith or not is not dependent upon the elder pastor, but the elder pastor is one who oversees your soul. That is the one who oversees your maturing in the faith. He's tasked with that responsibility. And so what Paul says that, that he's giving, that Christ is giving the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, he's not talking about a specific ministry. We're talking about kind of a holistic understanding of ministry. The scriptures describe the church as, as a body with many members, hands, feet, eyes, ears. And so one way to think of it is like, it's like elders are like the personal trainers. Right? If you go to the gym and you see and you are meeting with a personal trainer, what's the personal trainer do? They show you how to work at the equipment. They tell you which body parts to work out. They, they tell you how many reps to do. They might counsel you on, on, on dieting as well. But one of the things that a personal trainer will do is, what's your end goal? What's, what are you trying to, what are you, where are you getting at? What is, is it a, is a target weight? Are you trying to put on more muscle? Are you trying to become more lean? What is the target? What is your goal? 
And then the, based on what that goal is, so then he, the personal trainer will help you to get to that goal. And so the elder pastor are like personal trainers in the church. If the end is that the church would measure up to the fullness of Jesus Christ, then it's the job of the elder pastor to help the saints getting to get to that end and maturing and growing in holiness. And so they teach, they preach, study the scriptures, they help others to study the scriptures, they counsel, they lead community groups, they walk people through suffering, they pray with the saints, answer theological questions. It doesn't mean that the elder pastor has to have all the answers, but if he doesn't have the answers, then he'll at least go and do his due diligence and get the answers. They encourage the body to work in unity. They encourage the body to love, to pursue reconciliation. They correct, they rebuke. They help the saints to strive for peace. To help us think about this office, think of it this way, two different pictures that I get from the scriptures. One picture is a watchman. Ezekiel 33, 7, the Lord says, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. Right? A watchman is one who stands upon the towers of the, of, the, of, the, of the walls of the city and looks out on the horizon and see if anybody is approaching. And it's the job of the watchman to stay alert, even if it's at nighttime when everybody is sleeping, to stay alert, to stay attentive, to be diligent, right? to not fall asleep on the job, to not take it lazily. And so essentially that's what, that's what an elder pastor does. They're a watchman, keeping their eyes alert, being attentive, not falling asleep on the job. Though obviously, of course, they need some time off as well. But they're keeping their eyes open. Looking out for the sheep. Another picture is from Ezekiel 22.30. A man in the breach. So I like to think of the office of an elder pastor. Ezekiel 22.30. And I sought for a man among them, among God's people, who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it but I found none. The Puritan Matthew Henry says, sin makes a gap in the hedge of protection that is about a people at which good things run out from them and evil things pour in upon them. There is a way of standing in the gap by repentance and prayer and reformation. Now, in this passage where God is speaking to his rebellious people, and I'm not saying that this is, a, that this is kind of a similar context with the elder pastor standing in the breach into an unrepentant congregation. I don't think you're unrepentant. But I think the idea that I try to capture from that passage as it relates to the elders of an elder pastor is that an elder pastor is one who stands in the breach, who stands between God and his people. A man who will pray for the church, pray for the purity of the church, encourage people to repentance when there needs to be repentance. 
And by the way, I think this is a, a call to all men and to young men and to young women and to older women, to husbands, to wives. I think this is a call to all of us, but especially, I think, to men. Should the world be void of any godly people on the entire planet, would you be that kind of man that God would say, I'm looking for a man to stand in the breach to avoid my holy wrath? Jonathan Edwards wrote many resolutions. His first resolution was, I will live for God. Resolution two was, if no one else does, I still will. Is that you? If there was no other godly person in the entire planet, will you still live for God? And those are the kind of people that God is looking for. And I'm saying that the elder pastor, though he is imperfect, is that kind of man who stands in the breach that God can look to and says that this is a man that can stand in the breach. So then given the monumental vision of the church and the essential role that the elder pastor plays in the accomplishing of that vision, it's necessary that he meets certain qualifications. So then to that, we turn to 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. First Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3.1 the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, I want to walk us through all these qualifications, they won't take long, I don't think. But before I do, I want to first address what might be, hopefully it isn't, but I want to address what might be an elephant in the room, and that is the question of whether or not women can be elders or pastors. Many Christians, many churches, and many even denominations have no problem ordaining women to pastoral ministry or ordaining women to the office of an elder pastor. The problem that I see with that is the Bible. The qualifications of 1 Timothy is referring to men. And if anyone needs further proof of that or further grounding of that, they need to just look to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, which grounds male-only elder pastors in creation because of the teaching, because of the authoritative nature of the office, because it is a teaching office. Now listen, it's not because women are inferior to men. There are plenty of women who are much more talented, much more gifted than men. Some of you husbands might even say that your wives are much more talented and gifted than you are. You're probably right. But it doesn't 
make, it doesn't make them qualified to lead God's church, essentially what God is saying in the scriptures. And it's not an inferiority, superiority kind of thing. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that women are inferior to men, and neither does it ever say that men are inferior to women. But the scriptures, I think, make clear that men and women are equal, but just serve in different capacities and serve in different roles. And Paul is telling us here, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, that the office of elder should only be occupied by qualified men. So that when I'm speaking to the office of elder pastor, I'm specifically referring to men because the Bible does so. Now, some of these qualifications are similar to deacons with some notable differences. So first, Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. First, Paul wants to us the, wants the church to know that if someone desires the office of an overseer or the elder pastor, he's desiring something that is honorable. That this is an honorable position. This is a noble task. He's telling us that you've got to want it. Now, not every man will want it. And some men will not want it because they've never considered it. And some men have never considered it because they've never been asked. So consider this my asking you if you've never, if you've never been asked before. You should consider becoming an elder. Prayerfully and thoughtfully. Now there are some men who never consider it that still fit the criteria and those men should consider it. There, will, there are some men, there will be some men who will consider it, desire it, and should not be put in that office. That's why we have these qualifications in 1 Timothy. And by the way, I think age plays an important part in this as well. Though it's not, Paul doesn't directly refer to it here, I think he does so in 1 Timothy 5.22 about being too hasty and laying on the hands of somebody who is too young. Now, I think that there are some young men, 21, 22, who, ex- who show an extraordinary level of maturity beyond their years, but I would say that that's kind of an anomaly. But I think Paul does warn in 1 Timothy 5, 22, to not be too rash in laying on of hands or separating somebody to, this part, to any kind of particular ministry who is too young. Now, there are some men who should not, or actually no men should be pushed into the office. First Peter 5, 5.2, the apostle Peter says, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Right, so let's say if a man is nominated to be an elder more than once, and finally, he's like, you know what? I, I don't want to deny it again. I'm just going to do it. That's the wrong motive. Nobody should ever be compelled to serve in this particular office. They should have a desire for it. They should want it. And because I think this is a divinely appointed office, those who desire it and meet those qualifications, I, mean, I would argue that, there are, that, they, that, this is, that that desire comes from the Lord. Because not every man will have that desire. 
they should desire it. And that man should be above reproach. And it speaks to reputation. Is there any stain in his character that would disqualify him from the office? Is he known to have a particular besetting sin? It doesn't mean that he should be perfect, but he should have a noble character. He should be the husband and one wife. Is he faithful to his wife? Is this man known for having kind of a roving eyes? Is he known to have an adulterous relationship? That person should not be put into the office of an elder pastor. Is he sober-minded and self-controlled? Is this man generally rational, not led by his emotions? Does he generally act not by impulse, but he gives thoughts to his actions and his words? Does he show control over his emotions? Does he in any way show any kind of lack of self-control in other areas of his life? Right? Is he given to alcohol? Is he given to drunkenness? Spending, perhaps. Maybe he has no control over his spending. That's what it means to be self-controlled. This man should be respectable. Right, if you have a son, can you point to this man? Can you point your son to this man and say, this is man is someone you should imitate? Hospitable. Is he inviting others into his home? Paul seems to say that this is a determining factor of whether or not somebody is qualified to be an elder. But the main idea is not necessarily inviting people into the home, but the main idea I think that Paul is getting at is that is this person engaging with people? Is he seeing people? Is he pursuing people? Is he seeking people from the church? In other words, if somebody is going to be a shepherd of the sheep, then he must smell like the sheep. In other words, you guys all smell nice. But he's got to be with the people. Is he well thought of by outsiders? I've heard of one church when they are... When they're considering somebody to be an elder, they actually go to that, that, that candidate's neighborhood and actually talk to some of their neighbors and say, hey, what do you think about this person? It's kind of a good idea. I don't know if I'm willing to go that far. <laughs> it is a good idea. But Paul is telling us that what people, what outsiders think matters. Does this person have a reputation for throwing wild parties in the neighborhood? <laughs> Is this person known for being some, maybe a prankster or being just unkind to his neighbors? And by the way, let me, let's, let's kind of bridge this now. Let's, let's talk about just our times today with technology, and especially with social media. Right? It's so easy to kind of do a, kind of a, a background check on people by just looking at their social media presence. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's so easy to to just look somebody up. If I were to go into your social, if I were to look you up on Facebook, what would I find? Would I see somebody who is displaying the characteristics of a Christian? I mean, just recently, somebody mentioned how there were these uh, two, two, uh, two uh, worship leaders from two different churches just kind of going at it via Facebook, just calling each other out, calling each other names, cussing each other out. It's like, that's disgraceful. 
Like, how are you carrying the name of Christ and then showing that kind of behavior in social media? But that's what we mean about having a reputation in the outside world. Like, would I find that kind of, what I say, would think nonsense in your social media? The other pastor must be able to teach. This is the distinguishing mark between elders and deacons. The elder must be able to teach. Deacons don't necessarily need to be able to teach. Now, certainly you can have deacons who are able to teach. And I think we do have deacons who are able to teach. But Paul is telling us that if an elder is going to serve as an elder, then he must be able to teach. And one thing I would want to know, if you are if you're nominated to be an elder and we take you through the process, one thing I would want to know is your understanding of the gospel. Tell me the gospel. I want to make sure you have a solid understanding of the gospel. Tell me about man's need for a savior. Tell me about how man sinned against God. Tell me about how man will not give glory to God and worship God or even give thanks to God and that man's sin has separated him from God. Tell me about Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who's come into the world, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the sins of his people, rose again three days later, and that anyone who believes in Jesus, trusts in Jesus, follows Jesus with their life, is forgiven of their sins, and receives eternal life. Tell me about the gospel. You must have a solid understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. in part so that you can refute those who contradict the gospel. To be able to correct somebody if they don't have a correct understanding of the gospel. It doesn't mean that they have to be an expert teacher. Just like with any gift, right? nobody automatically comes out of the womb and is an expert teacher or expert in anything, but it comes with practice. Some men don't consider the office because they don't think they're gifted at teaching. Well, I would ask, well, have you ever taught? And so how often? Maybe it's a matter of opportunity. Maybe it's a matter of practice. Teaching is a gift that has to be sharpened. Now, what about preaching? Are elders required to preach? Well, Paul doesn't give us that in the qualifications of 1 Timothy. Now, preaching is a form of teaching. And I think it's helpful to have elders to, that can preach. But preaching is also a gift from the Lord. And so the only way to really know if you have the gift, one, if you desire to preach in any kind of capacity, but also to try it out. So just know if you are ever nominated to be an elder, I'll ask you to preach a sermon. Not on a Sunday morning service, <laughs> but I mean, in the context of a small group. Just to help you out that way and to see whether or not you have that gift of preaching, whether or not to see you have that desire to preach. The church is blessed by having elders who can preach. And even if he, and an elder is not a regular preacher or even gifted at preaching, he should at least be able to preach when the lead pastor or other elders who might be able to preach are not available. The other pastor must not be a drunkard. This is referring to self-control. Must not be violent, but gentle. Does this man have a bad temper? Is he harsh with his words? 
He must not be quarrelsome. Does this man have a tendency to get into arguments with other church members? Does he have a tendency to sow division and discord in the church? He must not be a lover of money, which is kind of an interesting one because I don't think anybody goes into the pastorate looking to make a ton of money. (laughs) But there are certainly some who desire the money, who want money, who want to make more money in the office. And Paul says, don't put somebody into the office of an elder who has that love of money. I think he's specifically speaking to staff pastors. Right, the love of money is an idolatry. It's, it's, it's idolatrous. And Jesus says, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. So how can you tell if somebody's a lover of money? Just talk to them. Where's it, what, what comes out of their speech? Or how do they spend their time? He must be one who manages his home well. Is his home in order? Or is he giving more priority to his work or to his hobbies or hanging out with other people than his family? Is his marriage healthy? Right, if you're nominated to be an elder, I'll ask, how's your marriage? How are your children? Right, if you're nominated to be an elder and you have a wife, I will ask your wife, how, what do you think about your husband becoming an elder? Do you think he would make a good elder? Read these qualifications. Does your husband meet these qualifications? Are the children submissive? Not perfect obedience, not that they have to be saved, because that's not, the man is not responsible for that. But is there, are they generally obedient? Or are they generally disobedient? Do they have a reputation for being rebellious towards authority? Drunkenness, sleeping around. Then, we would, then I would say that you have more important things to think about and prioritize before you can even consider being an elder in the church. And I would also include in this particular qualification is, is the man leading his home spiritually? Is he praying with his wife and his children? Is he reading the word with his family? And this is a call to all husbands. You don't have to be an elder to manage a home well. We're all, all men are, are going to give an account for their families and how they manage their homes. And so we must all manage our homes well. So are you leading your family spiritually? Are you taking care of them? Are you prioritizing them? Are you making sure that your priorities are not elsewhere? Are you making sure that you have a happy and thriving marriage? He must not be a recent convert. It's like promoting an intern fresh fresh out of college to the position of CEO. Like you would never do that. And Paul warns against putting somebody who is new to the faith to the office of an elder. Why? Because there's a danger that they may become conceited and puffed up and arrogant. And somebody might go into the office not intending or not having any arrogant bone in their body, but just to have that position could open the door for arrogance. 
And Paul says that the person may fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, that he will be guilty as the same sin, of the same sin as Satan, and that is of pride. Just have a good standing for themselves. Or rather, he again, must be well thought of by outsiders. Again, goes back to reputation and what other people perceive about the man. So it's a great responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. And Paul is very specific about these qualifications. And the church needs men to help carry the load. And how many? Well, it depends on the size of the church. The smaller the church, the less elders it needs. The larger the church the more elders it needs. But certainly more is better. I used to run and got away from it, trying to get back into it now. But the first time I ever tried to run, I tried to run three miles, and it was a disaster. Because I I think I ended up running three miles, but I felt miserable. I mean, I threw up afterwards. The reason, because I didn't work up for it. I mean, I didn't have the lung capacity. I didn't have the capacity And here I am, maybe I was arrogant, and I tried to run three miles. Having more elders is like increasing the lung capacity to take in more air air while running and therefore providing greater stamina. That's what having a plurality of elders does. It provides the stamina that the church needs to continue to press forward and to move forward. So it's my prayer that we'd be, we would have more elders. It's my prayer that this year we would have at least one man in the pipeline to become an elder. And all men should consider becoming an elder. You should especially consider if you're a godly man. I would encourage you to look at the qualifications of an elder and ask yourself, do I meet these qualifications? And be honest with yourself and say, this one is lacking. I need to work on this. In fact, I would even dare you <laughs> to go home with your wife and run through this list and ask her, do you think I meet these qualifications? Where do you think I'm lacking? And why is if your husband meets those qualifications and encourage him in that way, tell him. Elder pastors are required to be men of courage and valor because the office isn't easy. There are difficulties. There are things that have to be worked out. There are things that nobody would ever want to deal with. So they have to be men of courage and valor. Again, Paul says that anybody who desires or aspires to this office desires a noble task. Paul wants us to know that this is an honorable office. And God has given to men a natural desire to defend and to protect. To defend and protect your family, the things that you love, even your time. So why not channel that desire to defend and protect in the context of the local church? And for all of us, may we each strive to have the character of an elder to meet these qualifications. And so wives, let your husbands know 
as you think about this list, what are some areas of growth? Or I've, I've seen you, I could see you becoming an elder. Men, give it some thought. Give it some prayer. And at the end of the day, you decide, no, I, I, I don't desire it. After praying and thinking about it, after talking about it with your spies, I would even encourage you to talk to me. But at the end of the day, you don't desire it, that's fine. That desire isn't given to everybody. But after prayer and consideration, you desire it, you desire a good thing. We should each have, strive to have these qualifications. And later in the year, we'll take nominations for an elder. And if you were to be nominated, could you say, I meet these qualifications? I'm growing in these areas. Not because of your own strength, but because you love the Lord. And the Lord is working in your heart and in your life through his Holy Spirit. And bearing, these different, bearing fruit of salvation, bearing fruit of the Holy Spirit, and showing these qualifications. Let me pray for us. Lord, there is none who shows these qualifications better than Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd of the sheep. Lord, and I am thankful that and elders have someone to imitate, to have someone who leads as an example. Lord, and I thank you that, that you are gracious because we don't always get it right. Sometimes we make mistakes. We thank you, Lord, for being gracious to the elders of our church. Lord, and I'm thankful for our church, for their compassion, for their generosity, for their love, for their patience. Lord, thank you that elders are not the ones who are required to come up with all the great ideas. Lord, there are many great ideas that I wish I could take ownership for, but I can't because they were not even my ideas. I thank you, Lord, that we are all looking to serve under one shepherd who is Jesus Christ and that we strive for unity, and we desire to work together, and may we continue to do so, and may, we, and may you continue to bless us and keep us. Help myself and Jay Smith, Lord, and we pray that you would be gracious and gift to us more elders who desire to be with the people, to minister to the people through word, and through prayer, who desire to defend and protect the purity of the church and the doctrine of the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.